Great, thank you. Um, well, um, I think you know probably the primary reason that um, I have been asked to speak to you is is because I've written a good deal about surveillance in particular as a tool of racial inequality. Um, and it's it's interesting because surveillance studies as a field in general in academia focuses largely on the generalized surveillance that people experience, particularly in the United States, where through either through computers, through cameras in public spaces, this idea that we're under watch in a ubiquitous way and that that's cause for alarm and that, you know, our finances are being watched, our, what we're watching on television, what we're looking at on the computer, all of these things are being watched. My concern in particular was to think about how surveillance itself is a tool of, of racial inequality, um, but in, in addition to being racialized, that surveillance and, and whether one is under surveillance is a function also, and the extent to which one is under surveillance is a function not simply of race, but also of class and gender. Um, and I, I have tried in my work to identify moments of heightened surveillance or spaces of heightened surveillance in order to demonstrate how the experience of being a member of this society can be radically different depending upon how you're situated and your exposure to censure, your, your exposure to, to bodily invasion, your exposure to punishment, all these things um, occur differentially. And a lot of the, the tools of that are a function of, of the surveillance state. Now, of course, the roots of racialized surveillance can be found in enslavement and in peonage and in the politics of imperialism, um, various ideas about the control of bodies of certain groups of people and this idea that the control of certain groups of people's bodies are legitimate um, and, that, and that 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 idea about controlling some categories of people are part of the idea of what the larger national interest is. So this ranges from the control over the reproduction of enslaved women in the 19th century to the sterilization of Puerto Rican women in the early 20th century as a matter of policy. Once the Puerto Rico became part of the United States and this practice of sterilization was in part fueled by anxiety over what it meant to have this nation filled with people of color as connected to the United States, right? So, so there's these practices where there's consistent in, um, a tradition of invading certain kinds of privacy and the idea that one should have control over, over some bodies tied to this idea, this, this idea of a particular national uh, interest. Um, and then there's also the dimension of racialized, racialized surveillance that has roots in this idea of free movement on a public highway or the lack of free movement on a public highway that is rooted in the presumption that someone is unfree or illegitimate or not a member of the society. And we can trace that to, to slavery, but also to peonage and, and rules about immigration and prohibitions of immigration of, of, um, of Asian Americans in, in the 19th century as well. So one dimension of what I often speak of or we think about in terms of surveillance is the surveillance that, of, of people who are in motion. Right? So racial profiling fits into that category of, surve of the surveillance state, um, and it's experienced both in terms of criminal law and policing, but as well in terms of immigration pra law pa practices. Um, and the expansion of the right to surveillance has been quite dramatic over the past 25 years, so that now there's minif minimal justification um, required to, to stop and search, whether it be for police 
or who are acting um, under the authority of criminal law or whether they're police who are acting now under the authority of immigration law where they can um, they can engage in surveillance and investigation and race ultimately becomes deemed a legitimate basis for for stopping people because one only needs now under the under the rules of, of the Supreme Court race and one other element right and the power to engage in that kind of surveillance has been extended in, in the arena of immigration from immigration officers to to police in, in many locations now this doesn't only impede upon one's free movement on a, in, in public spaces but it makes that person those people who are subject to that kind of surveillance increasingly vulnerable um, for being for being sort of categorized as those who are engaged in wrongdoing and arrested and convicted and the like. So, you know, there's often this narrative, well, if someone, why would some, why would, why should someone who is innocent care about racial profiling? But the reality is obviously that most people are engaged, have done some kind of illegal activity, but the, but the likelihood of being punished is dramatically different based upon your race and your class in particular, right? Um, the other thing is that um, we see the development of what Naomi Murakawa calls the shadow carceral state, where now, um, particularly for people who are undocumented, civil infractions are are kicking to having criminal penalties and then heightened incarceration. So it's another another dimension of the surveillance state is leading to greater incarceration and detention and and the like. Um, and we also have to consider the prison itself as a site of surveillance, right? So that in, the, in a nation where there are 2 million people in prison, um, those people are under a 24-7 experience of a kind of surveillance. Similar to the reality in poor communities, though, there's both under and over policing in the context of prisons. So there's the lack of privacy and sort of and physical invasions and the like. At the same time, there's a lack of remedy for someone who is abused in the context of prison. So you have that sort of under and over policing dynamic. Um, so I mean, when I and I and for me, the, to to talk about privacy and surveillance connected. Um, really does, I think, have roots in constitutional rights, which are not always um, explicitly stated, and not just in the context of the Fourth Amendment, but also this idea that there is a fundamental right to privacy. So when Roe v. Wade was decided and the Supreme Court says, well, we don't have it explicitly stated in the Constitution, but there is a right to privacy that everybody expects. Um, in the in the United States, it's it, it it's unenumerated in the Constitution, but it's presumed. But the reality is that there are many sectors of the society where people don't experience the benefit of the right to privacy, and those spaces are disproportionately poor, people of color, and immigrants. I think this is also of a same of a similar logic um, to the kind of surveillance practices that we see in public housing, that we see um, for people who live who are on public assistance. Um, so this ranges from uh, cameras in, 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 in hallways to visits of social workers and caseworkers who look in refrigerators and bedrooms um, and, and actually experience quite um, dramatic consequences, whether that be someone is penalized for having $10 in a bank account that goes unreported to having much more severe um, consequence of having children removed from the home because of inadequate food in the refrigerator for people who are who are already extremely poor. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of injury and wounding that is occurring on the basis of surveillance that is argued 
that, that, that the state argues is a legitimate practice of, of surveillance. Um, similarly, testing that occurs in public housing, I mean, sorry, in public hospitals that are often invasions of privacy without adequate warning. Um, similarly, long-term contraceptives, and this has a, a much has a long, a much longer history, but overwhelmingly, um, those who are given long-term contraceptives generally without adequate warning, there's, there's actually some good research about this happening in Atlanta, are young women of color or in other nations, um, poor women of color as well, um, who are given long-term contraceptives without adequate information about what are the, what are the risks associated with them. Um, so, there's, so there's both this sort of control of movement um, and also invasion of the body that are part, that, that become part of the, the practices of surveillance. Um, and one of the things that I think is really important is to interrogate how these are, are take, are assumed to be legitimate interventions. Um, and, and we really have to call, call that into question, this idea that, these, that all these invasions of privacy and all of these controls of, of bodies are legitimate interventions and instead focus on what does it, that do to, to diminish a person's experience or, or set of rights as, as a member of this nation. And I use the word member instead of citizen quite deliberately because we ought to recognize members of the society as having, um, being possessed of, of a certain set of rights irrespective of their citizenship status. Um, I don't want to go on too, too long, but <clears throat> there's other areas that I think are important to think about this logic, whether, whether we talk about homeless populations where, according to our Supreme Court now, you're not deemed to have a right to, to privacy in the creation of temporary shelters, right, for someone who is homeless, or um, the, the realm of undocumented workers who have little, who are incredibly vulnerable to the abuses of employers because, because of their status and their, the invasions upon privacy and, and, and the protection of bodily integrity, the invasion upon that um, by, by employers because we have, because of um, the combination of our surveillance state um, uh, marginalizing those populations and then them not, also not having remedies. So all of that to say there is an entire realm where what is deemed to be a fundamental right is, is elusive for people. Um, and I think that there is extreme political value in exposing these practices because I think it forces us to raise the question about, you know, how, what does it mean to have a fundamental right and to frame it in terms of the invasion of right as opposed to in terms of sort of the policy interest, public policy interest so of, of the state, which often that conversation about the interests of the state, like we have to make sure there's fraud that's not being committed in public housing and so we engage in this surveillance. So we have to make sure that people um, aren't engaged in some illegal practice on the corner. If we flip that, that lens and instead think about what does it mean for a person in a society to be under a constant experience of, of being surveyed, of being observed, and presumed to be engaged in some wrongdoing, what does that do to diminish their experience as a member of the society? Um, and so for me, and I write about this in my book, I think the case of Diane Bond, who I encourage people to look up her story, um, who was 
um, assaulted and harassed and abused by a group of police officers in the Stateway Garden housing projects in Chicago. And the exposure of her story um, led to a, to, to a large-scale litigation where, um, and, and I should say that the city of Chicago spent millions of dollars defending these police officers who had terrorized this public housing project. But the exposure of her story I think is is one is is a really important kind of political act, and the case is a political act because it is almost as though we close our eyes to what is happening in many many sectors of the society, and as much as we expose um, these kinds of invasions and the kind of brutality that that actually surveillance state leads to, I think that leads us to a better space politically. I'll stop there.